I mean, because, you know, you read a, a bunch of people, Foucault, Nietzsche, Del I mean, all of these thinkers have connections, but like the lineage seems so clear to me. Like I find it almost impossible to delineate the, the, the thread or the type of thinking between some of these people. It feels like they just kind of fall into each other in productive ways, not just in some sort mm -hmm. of melange of nothingness, but like all right, of right. the arguments or the sort of impressionistic stuff in, in this, in this series of lectures is like, I see that Foucault, I see that a little bit in Hegel, I, I for sure see it in Nietzsche. And, um, it's funny because Heidegger basically says that throughout the, this series of lectures as well. It's like, this is the one question <laughs> of all of yeah. philosophy and for me and for everybody. This is the only question, is what does it mean to think? What does it mean to be a human being? Um, yeah. But I, I, well, on the flip side, just real quick, I did find this first uh, lecture a little bit circular, and I, it took me a while to kind of dig into it. You know, the, the style, I mean, we've, we've critiqued his style uh, here and there, but I found it like, okay, you're saying the same thing, and I get that, you know, it's all auto-referential, and that's part of the thesis, basically, but I'm like... Can you try to say something else besides repeating yourself? Like, just add, I don't know, just an example, anything. Like, I felt, this, just, the second one for today, I kind of dug into, I was able to get some stuff out. But the first one, I was, it just kind of felt like it plodded, plodded along. Well, I liked it because it gave me a completely different sense of the way that he's thinking of calling here yeah. and and so like and so a lot of the sort of everyday usages of like what calls us to think you know like I had a sense of like okay this is gonna meet, there's gonna be the invitation you know what calls us to think is calling us to become involved with it but he had a lot of that those kind of like um, common um, sort of articulations of of his questions where I just wasn't I was hearing calling sort of like very telegraphically and not you know, in this relationship to a naming. And, and I kind of liked what he did with the relationship between, say, calling something a name and what calls to us. And especially, like, when he started talking about the um, the sense of command, mm -hmm. right? So, like, not a command as giving an order that is an imperative placed upon you, but more like an, inv an invitation or an entrustment. You have been entrusted with a particular... Right. And a requirement to care for a particular kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it definitely helped me reorient myself um, to to the, the way that he's using the call here. You know, we're, so we're starting with, this is, you know, we're on part two of the two-part lecture series, and we're just doing lecture one and lecture two. And, you know, lecture one is he's sort of like restarting up the question, yeah. what is called thinking. He's like, all right, there are... Four. This breaks itself up into four, you know, primary questions. What do we mean by you know this question or this uh, what thinking? What 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 do we, what does it signify? This this word thinking. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what is sort of like commonly said, or what's the traditional doctrine of what we usually mean when we when we talk about what thinking is? What are the sort of prerequisites that are required in order to take up the activity of thinking? And then what is calling us or what is the call itself to take up thinking? And he's like speculating, although it seems like it's not actually speculating, that that fourth question is the privileged one insofar as it, it is 
bringing up the other the other three. It's involving the other three. Right. That's sort of the organizing question, and all the other questions in some way spawn from it, or they're yeah. all related. But it seems like that is the sort of foundational because it's involving that command or compulsion or that push, that drive uh, towards mm-hmm. being and thinking, right? It's like all the other ones are uh, at least a little bit superficial in regard to that uh, primary question. Um, but it definitely, I mean, the way that he takes on call there, which, you know, he's really careful with how he uses the word command, and he doesn't, I think, want to think of it as a compulsion. Um, that that you know it is much more of an invitation or an entrustment and that is a that that gives a very different flavor or character to thinking that as opposed to like the what we've been how we've right. been thinking of it almost as like a coping mechanism sort of like in that Zizek right you know, well the the compulsion would be the the common thinking I, I think that's kind of how he treats that here where it's like mm-hmm. we tend towards representational thinking because it's more convenient um, because it's eases communication engagement it just fits into modern techno social society better representational thinking Mm -hmm. um right so you slide into that as a compulsion almost and he wants to get away from that uh with the the more essential type of thinking which to me like and this has been an objection of john's i think throughout this <laughs> i'm sitting i'm sitting quietly here no, just kind of waiting i know I because the, the opposition <laughs> i mean we don't have to totally get into the weeds right up front but like the opposition between common commonness and heideggerianness mm-hmm. is like <laughs> why why is there that opposition like it does i understand that representational thinking is a problem that articulating it as a problem is fine but Treating it as unnatural and as improper seems like mm-hmm. just kind of a strange argument if that's the way that everybody thinks. If that's the way yeah. that everybody does things, how can you call that unnatural? Just by virtue of the numbers, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I had read this before when we were continuing in, and I remember at the time reading it and being like, Okay, there's the annoying return to the metaphorics of what we what I would just loosely call the metaphorics of authenticity yeah. or yeah. propriety or whatever. Um, but it didn't bug me because I was interested in the train going from the Nietzschean lineage not. But now we took two months off and I read it again last night and I'm just like, Jesus fucking Christ. Like <laughs> yeah. honestly, like I couldn't get I, I couldn't get through it without crossing out and, and also just the, the the relentlessness of his desire to say, you know, it's an, a story of alienation that Heidegger perpetually tells, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. which is once we were authentically yeah. in language in relation to being and, and now we're not and we've fallen out of. And so his desire is to return to the proper domain of, of language and all these things. And and this is partly in response to uh, D- the Daniel Gross stuff I read this uh, I read this weekend, but like. To me, the, that commitment, the fascism is right there, right? Like the, yeah, yeah. the notion that there is a proper relation that most people, you know, have fallen away from that he wants to try to return us to. Like, how is that not the basis of purity, propriety, all of the right. this yep. sort of deep metaphor? And, and, and I understand that there are ways of complicating the notion of essence in these things, but everything about it seems to, seems to shout 
Like, we've fallen away. It's a, it's a, a Garden of Eden story. Right. Yeah. Right? Pre-lapse Once area. upon a time. Right, exactly. And in this case, it's not that we were in the state of pure presence. We were in the state of pure non-presence. Right? Yeah. Like, and we've <laughs> fallen into the state of presence and representation. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and we have to try to get back to, which, I mean, Nate, I, I can't agree with you more. Like, it's... It's so unnecessary in terms of the thinking. You could just say these are yeah. different ways of thinking. Right. And, and this one affords something that this one doesn't afford. So you can still make the distinction. And again, if he did that, then I would want to say, well, does the distinction really hold up? You know, you'd want to do that, those kinds of moves. Of like, or is it a temporary provisional distinction where you want to say, oh, in fact, representation does something more than represent, right, would be the next move. But he doesn't even go, you know, it doesn't even go to that. It really is a, a sort of... I mean, the language of ha- have to make an effort to live properly yeah. with language. Language properly inhabited. What, re- what language really says, even though rare signification is the real one, right? Like this, yeah. the recurrence, and that's on one page, yeah. Yeah. right? The, the recurrence of this terminology of like, this is the right, authentic, true, proper, primary way of relating to it, language. And it's like, it just seems that's a commitment. That, it, it seems like just are, strange. Go ahead, Nathaniel. I, I'll I'll pick I was just going to say there there are a couple of passages that I think kind of like you know you mentioned Theolo- cross it's theological. Out. By the way, it's just yeah. it's just like I can't read this without thinking of of God. Sin. Like I yeah. can't yeah. read it without that. Yeah. No, I I agree. Like the the very first line of lecture two. What is most thought-provoking gives food for thought in the original sense that it gives us over delivers us to thought. And I just crossed out original. I was like, mm-hmm. now, like in in this sense, right? Um, but he like he's got a couple of of lines here that I, I think complicate it just a little bit. I don't think enough, but just a little bit. Like on the bottom of one twenty seven, um, where he has been talking about sort of like the commonness of the common, which I just love. Like he's like people who are floundering in the commonness of the common. But such a uh, I know I know such a disdain uh, for the yes. common yeah. for every human. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, well, yeah, and and I, but but interestingly and relevantly, the disdain comes from the fact that they think that they're individual, isolated entities yeah. that they aren't mitzah. Yes. They they aren't that's being right. in the world in common, right? Like that. that that's yeah. the the so the the problem with right. the common man is yeah. that they're not common. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, but he, to speak to the fascism kind of built in here, you know, this is the third paragraph on 126, lecture two, um, where, you know, he's basically giving an account of the the draw, or like I would say like the performative force of the of the common, like the, the infinitive verb to common, like that, that paragraph reads, whether we are in any given case capable of thinking, that is, whether we accomplish it in this fitting manner, depends on whether we are inclined to think, whether that, uh, whether that is, we will let ourselves become involved with the nature of thinking. It could be that we are inclined too slightly and too rarely to let ourselves become so involved, and that is not so because we are all too indolent or occupied with other matters and disinclined to think, but because the involvement with thought is itself a rare thing reserved for few people. And he so frequently talks about thinking as the essence of human nature. So if you have this rare, if, if the essence of human nature is rare at the sort of the level of like who has access to it and who doesn't, mm-hmm. then you have to like that by definition leads to the claim that most people aren't pe- humans. Most humans aren't yeah. humans, right? Yeah. You can, I mean, it, right. it's, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I just wonder like, 
if some of the terminology were just slightly shifted, if the message would be less fascistic or just oh, I less... Think it like requires like a two degree shift and right. this whole, and, and like would, get rid of all the so proper different. propriety yeah. get rid of all that language and just talk about differential relations yeah. relationality yeah. yeah you could do that right i mean you could like, totally do that here you could just make i don't think you would edits. have to add a word you would just have to you'd have to just remove a bunch of adjectives and adverbs and right. you did that and and you've got something really but interesting that's a, i mean th think of the think of the difference for me with nietzsche and interpretation in the genealogy of morals when he describes interpretation which is just like what is interpretation? It's just picking something up here and putting it somewhere else, right? That that's right. what it is. And there's no question of an originary or an authentic mm -hmm. or a prior. Like, he makes fun of that. He's like, no, it's uh, that whole question makes no sense. The originary would just be another placement, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so there there is no first placement, and the first placement has no priority, whereas it so clearly does for Heidegger, right? Yeah, like, yeah. The, or what he claims to be, and he finds it in the Greeks with his sort of etymological, and I'm all down with the, the etymological jujitsu, mm -hmm. um, except for that it's an attempt to capture an originary yeah. sense. Like, it just doesn't, you just don't need to do that, but at least, I mean, for me, it's, it's relevant that he does do that, and it's, right. it, it, it is relevant to what makes Heidegger Heidegger. Exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and, and I find myself, I'm so interested in, for instance, he's one of the, I keep returning to this because you know, you guys know my style, disposition stuff, like it's all over this, the, the how one mm -hmm. inhabits the question or how one hears you know, the call or, or uh, whatever. And it's like, I love all of that stuff, mm -hmm. except for that he wants to say there's an original right proper yeah. way and then everything else is a secondary sort of derivative manifestation thereof. Right. And you're like, that is the whole metaphysics of the sort of appearance reality dynamic that you're supposed, you know, you're supposedly problematizing. Right. But yeah. I don't, you know, yeah. that's what, that's it, that the, the Lutheran sensibility or, yeah. I mean, whatever the particular, it's just. Yeah. It, uh, it, it's the only thing that, that saves it or makes it more interesting than any of the, you know, pre-enlightenment or even enlightenment, like pre-Descartes and including Descartes, is that this is still an ontology of difference. So when he talks about yeah. the ambiguity of the question not just being a result of linguistic ambiguity, mm -hmm. but that it's an ontological ambiguity. That's right. The structure of relations is ambiguous. Um, yeah. Sentences like that kind of pull me out of the, yeah. the more uh, vulgar yep. sentences in, in, in these lectures, but you're right. It, I don't know if it, he just vacillates between fascism and and difference, or if they no, are, I, you know. I think that like there's a fascism of difference. difference. Right. Yeah. Right? Like, I mean, no, but I think that that's the point, yeah. right? Like, yeah. for me, that's the point. In other words, the kind of, and I, I totally agree with you, because that's where I said before, he, he has a beef here with the common way of doing things, mm -hmm. but the common way of doing things is that it doesn't take its commonality seriously enough. It yeah. doesn't think of its its commonality as fundamentally right. constitutive. Right. So that second part, you'd be like, oh, here's a pluralist politics. Like, here right. is a way, you know, um, that sounds great. Except for the whole, what I, in my terminology, the style that gets him yeah. to that kind of claim is one that's organized around a scarcity, a rarity, an exception. Yeah. Um, a pure and, and, and specifically one that's thought in terms of purity and propriety.
Look at the bottom of 118, and this this last paragraph on 118 is almost an articulation of, like, say, Derrida's difference, where or, or some kind of like linguistic drift, except for you know the iterate iteration, the citationality, that kind of linguistic drift here is for Heidegger a movement away from something that is more primary, rather than just a movement that is away from where it you know from the last just, point, right? Right, but. I mean, that paragraph reads, is this a return, uh, a whim, or playing games? Neither one, or, uh, neither one nor the other. If we may talk here of playing games at all, it is not we who play with words, but the nature of language plays with us. Not only in this case, not only now, but long since and always. And, you know, that's obviously like his language speaks us, we don't speak language. Right. But here's the, the more pertinent uh, lines. For language plays with our speech. It likes to let our speech drift away into the more obvious meaning of words. It is as though man had to make an effort to live properly with, it, with language. It is as though such a dwelling were especially prone to succumb to the danger of commonness. Mm. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I have a certain sympathy for that, but I'll get to, I'm going to save that for a little bit later. I'm going to begin with the critique first is just that, you know, there is like, there, there, there is a, that there's an essential ambiguity at the heart of real language and that real language constantly sort of inclines itself to calcification, to reification. It sounds very Nietzschean in a certain kind of ways, you know, like yeah. what are words there? They're, they're, you know, these sense imprints that have lost all of their sensory value. They've just been worn away. Um, but, you know, for the way that Heidegger is articulating it here is that is almost always a problem. He, he saves that one sort of like false bit of praise, you know, in, in the second lecture where he says... Um, you know, such this is uh, the bottom of 127. Such communication does not want to lose time tarrying over the sense of individual words. I thought of Hegel there. Right. Uh, instead, words are constantly thrown around on the cheap and in the process are worn out. I thought of Nietzsche there. There is a curious advantage in that. With worn out language, everybody can talk about everything. Right. So it's like there is a value to it. It does allow us to be able to, by the reduction of language allows for a certain kind of pragmatism of language, but it's not a particularly but valuable value. The reductive capacity is precisely what he's critiquing and what he, what Heiger yeah. wants to get away from. And that, this is, this is the not, it's so, not thinking, right? This is the not so subtle, but kind of subtle difference between Heidegger's position. And if you want to couple him with Nietzsche and Foucault, whoever, and the, that crew and Hegel, because Hegel mm -hmm. provides no alternative to reduction or appropriation, right? So if you want to think about the last man as the guy or the woman or whoever who uh, is invested in or enthralled to representational thinking being, um, for Hegel, that's all there is. And for Heidegger, there is... You know, we talked about the overman in the, in the previous chapters and that. There is something else. And that's that's what he's after this whole time is the other thing that's not representative. I mean, think about the, but think about that difference right there. Like, for Nietzsche, it's the overman, which is the speculative future point. For Heidegger, it's the Greeks, which right. is the speculative so historical back. point. Right, right? Yeah, like, right. it's backwards, right. not forwards. And, I mean, to me, that makes a huge difference, right? Like, we've lost some original primordial versus we could achieve some other kind of something, 
No, that is a key. I mean, Heidegger, the, the fetishizing mm-hmm. of the Greeks, I just don't understand. I mean, like, I, I get that, like, a lot of people do it. <laughs> like, a lot of people yeah. look back towards the Greeks as fulfilling some sort of essence. I mean, of, Nietzsche, right? right like, right. they all know. kind of, even Hegel does it. I mean, you know, he, yeah. he sees Aristotle as, like, the guy. And, like, he sees his work as an extension of Aristotle's work, which it's just not. I mean, it's just a complete break in certain ways that he doesn't even recognize. Um, that's such an arrogant thing to, to say about, like, Hegel doesn't even realize <laughs> right. the brilliance of it, whatever. Um, right, right. But, but yeah, you're right. I just think it's a useful... But Nikola Jokic of philosophy. Right <laughs> that's me. MVP, baby. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, like what, the, the, the paragraph you just brought up, Nathaniel, I, like, highlighted a bunch because... I, I think, like, to, to critique commonness, representation, whatever you want to call it, is fine and good. And pretty much every philosopher post-Descartes does some variation of that. But why don't you take it seriously? If that's the guiding mode of thinking um, from then until now, like, why not, like, live in that a little bit or at least uh, allow for its endurance, right, as opposed to offering some sort of prescriptive policy in Heidegger's case of like stripping it and getting back to the bare essence of, of human being. Uh, this well, is, so, yeah. Uh, but like, I, 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 I wouldn't say, I mean, that my approach would not be that because I feel like there is, there's an advantage or there, it's a tactical, yes. again, stylistic, it's just comportment question. But like, I see an advantage in saying, so I had this moment in my undergrad class this semester where something sort of clicked for me and I was trying to understand why every single time I've ever taught anything like social construction, just the basic logic of social construction, gender is socially constructed, doesn't matter what, um, people automatically go, oh yeah, that it's free for all. It it has no truth. There is no meaning, right? That's the, the default move is there's nothing, you know, then there's nothing. If it's socially constructed, then it's not real or Mm -hmm. something like that. And I'm just trying to get my head around, why is that the default? Like, why is that the move that just about every human that I've ever taught that idea to automatically goes to, is that you're saying that it's not real? And one of the things I I realized, and I talked about this with my undergrad class, they didn't get any of this shit, but um, I was like, I think something important here, when I use the term life, let's say, just you can pick any word, pick death. It doesn't matter, like a term. When I use the term death, you guys think that I'm referring to something in the world. I think that I'm referring to a concept that attempts to group together a disparate series of things in the world. So when I talk about death, I am fully cognizant that I am talking about a concept that attempts to intersect with the world. They think they are directly talking about the world that way. So any claim that I would make about death. And so therefore, when you undo it, they think it goes away. Whereas for me, if you undo it, you just need another concept. Like, you know, nothing has gone away just because you undo the concept of death, right? Like, so in other words, the extent to which I so fully buy a kind of Nietzschean Mm -hmm. logic of conceptual construction, right? Um, is it's impossible for me to really, um, or or it's possible for me to have an intervention in that that's not external in right. a sense, right? Like I I'm always going to be at kind of loggerheads because they're just at they're just at a kind of different conce- their relation to the 
between the concept and the world for them is intuitively and fundamentally something that is intuitively fundamentally different than mine. Right. Right. Like uh, now, my intuitive and fundamental thing has been learned. Right. Like let's, right. I'm not saying I was six and I had this. Right. Like um, so, it, of course, this intuitive and fundamental thing is trainable. Mm -hmm. It's changeable in that regard. So, so to me, I go like, okay, my project can't be then to inhabit that mode of thinking because I can't. I just can't. I can't. It's not possible for me to think of death as referring right. simply to events in the world. Right. Um, and, yeah. and so I have to come at it from, again, a position that's kind of external to that epistemol that sort of epistemology. Like, I yeah. just have to. Yeah. So the, the question then becomes, what are the different ways of, uh, of doing that? And what I, like, what I just articulated there is a self-conscious way. It would be a very Hegelian. Like, yeah. I've become aware of the conceptual difference between concepts for me and for them. Diagnostic, sort of. That's yeah. right. Right. That's right. So it's, but it's still, I mean, you're quite right in this say, like, here's a difference, right? Mm -hmm. Here's a difference. And, and it's a difference that um, I think is really important. And it a lot follows from that. If you start thinking of concepts as being ways in which humans organize a disparate series of actions, as opposed to representations of the world, they're not, I mean, because ways in which humans organize actions you know, can itself be representations of the world. It's just mm -hmm. you're taking an ep epistemological step, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which I, I would say is an ontological one via Heidegger, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, but it is a step that's different than the step that they're on. And so therefore teaching them the logic of construction at the point that they are is going to send them somewhere different that's not here. Yeah. Right? I mean, and, and that's that sense in which like, ah, there is a process here. And there, it's a process, into, and I don't think it's an intrinsic one, but if you're at this relation and you're taught this idea, that will go here, mm -hmm. not here, mm -hmm. yeah. right? Like, mm -hmm. that's where, <laughs> this is going to be good on a podcast, the here and the here and the, <laughs> the yeah, hand good thinking. Yeah. But you, know, didn't you know what didn't go to it like, together, yeah. No, I definitely do. <laughs> yeah. Which is to say, like, you there's don't... There's a process. Yeah. To say that there are inclinations and orientations isn't to say that they are natural or embedded no. or no. like necessary, especially necessary, no. right? That, but like given one style or kind of construction, you know, introducing a new element to it is going to shoot it off in one direction rather than the other direction, mm -hmm. right? And that's and it always. I mean, you guys, have, I'm yeah. sure, have had that experience. You you teach the logic of construction, and the default yeah. thought. For literally every single yeah. student is, oh, that means it's not real. Yeah, that's like, exactly no, what that's, I run into. That's what makes it real, right? right. Like yeah. that's what makes it real. But my approach is to be is to say like, we are in a building that has been constructed, and by God, I hope it's real because otherwise we're all going <laughs> to collapse here here pretty soon. Yeah. And you know, like because part of the the fear of the of the it's all constructed is that it can be it can be changed arbitrarily willy-nilly like it can be completely right. like it, it can be it's not real you know yeah exactly it can, it's not real so it can become something radically different tomorrow i'm like well we can change this building but it requires time and labor and material right. and right. you know you're constrained by certain you know whatever else and you know and we're you know this building is 70 years old but the concepts that we're talking about are thousands of years old and have mutated right. over that time but right you know, it's, but it again, it requires, you know, the, a, a kind of yeah. labor. And it, it is real because it's constructed. And guess what? Trees construct themselves too. And 
Well, and it re- um, so I, you say something like, and I did, I said this, I said, death is a concept. And they're yeah. like, whoa. And I'm like, that's not a heady thing. Like, no. I'm, not, I'm not saying anything really big when I say it, or at least I don't yeah. think that I am. Yeah. It's just a way of grouping together. Like, you look at that, that tree outside that's turning brown and doesn't have leaves, and you look at, like, you know, an old person or something, and you say, hey, what's happening to these things is similar enough that we're going to call it the same thing, right? It's straight straight truth and lies, right? Yeah, and so yeah. that's a concept called death that I am homogenizing what is clearly an incredibly different thing mm-hmm. for that tree than it is for that person, right? Like it's, yeah. it's incredibly different, but we're going to treat it homogenously. I mean, I, I think the issue, and this is what Heidegger points to, is that most people just don't want to do what, what we see as just a little bit more work. You know, because you, mm-hmm. you say the construction of gender, of death or whatever is a construction but that it has import it has purchase in the world and so that doesn't make it any less real than an empirical phenomenon it's just that you know you have to kind of do a people want an easy way out so like if you say constructions make everything meaningless then it's just nihilism and then you can you can just kind of buy your way out that way you can reject it or you can say that death is only strictly an empirical phenomenon that's measurable and you know the biological body expires whatever it is and you can identify it that way, capture it, and solidify it in your head. And so it's like people, right. there's a slowness, and you have to be invested in your own thinking to even get to what we see as kind of a basic conceptual I intervention I agree. in constructionism. I agree. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I completely agree in that, you know, we like to think, like, the, the, the intervention that people who think like us tend to make is to resist that sort of representational orientation of, of language and say, no, like language is one force among any others that is sort of, you know, working on and with the world and it's not sort of transcendent and representing it. But that, like language as medium, language as conceptual medium accounting for the world is, like, you have to pass through that before you can complicate it. And, you know, I look at the way that, like, Lachlan engages language and you know like a lot of our students are engaged like they are also engaged in an immediacy of language that there's not even a representational function for language like death the word death the concept death is also just death like the the empirical you know collection of phenomenon that we've labeled like like the 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 work of the the work of the concept of death is so thoroughly constructing in you know the 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 life world of of you know like the immature linguistic user is that it completely hides its seams is that right. you know the difference between language and the world there it, it it is imminent just not imminent in the way that we have sort of reasoned ourselves to to see it like they have to I don't know I mean I actually I actually kind of feel the opposite yeah like yeah like I I mean and I, I can be wrong about this, so this is right. not a – I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. But, like, I kind of feel like it's – you know, I'll give you an example. When I – a long, long time ago when Aubrey was a year and a half old, and this is when I'm dating – this is back in grad school when I'm dating Sharon. And Aubrey's a year and a half old, and I'm babysitting with her and a friend one day. And uh, she and her – like, I'm reading out in the living room, and she and her friend, you know, another two-year-old or whatever, are playing in the back room. And, you know, I'm, I'm just sitting there reading, and suddenly there's all this screaming. 
and I'm like, and I jump up and I run back there. I'm terrified, right? Mm-hmm. And they're just they're just both looking up at me, and I'm like, what the hell's going on? And they're like, oh, well, we were playing a screaming game. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Okay, okay, do me a favor. No more screaming game, okay? And they're like, okay, no problem, no problem. They weren't fucking with me. They were just like, no problem, yeah. no problem. So I, I go out and I sit down, and two minutes later, ah, all this screaming, all this screaming. And I run back there, and they're like, what's going on, you guys? And they're like, what? And I was like, why were you screaming? They're like, no, we were playing a shouting game. <laughs> wow. And, and, and it was this moment, and they're two years old. I'm not exaggerating, yeah. anymore, right? Like, they're two years old. And they're like, and they were just dumbfounded that I would have mixed yeah. up yeah. screaming and shouting because they sounded awfully freaking similar. And, and to me, I'm like, well, who's the one who's smoothing over differences? Yeah. Right? It's, it's me. Right, like, yeah. and for practical purposes, and for totally understandable ones, mm-hmm. but I am, ma- I am not making a distinction between screaming and shouting for the purposes of them yeah. and my concern for their well-being. Mm-hmm. Right, but they did, and they had no problem making that distinction. Yeah. So, and, and I also, I mean, to me, and, I, and this is just sort of ex- phenomenologic experientially, I always find like the concepts with which I'm understanding things to make no sense, to be so core, like just in my routine, everyday yeah. interaction. Yeah. And I'm yeah. saying when I was when I was 15 years old, that was just as true as it is when I'm 50 years old. Like these concepts of, you know, institution, person, scholar, yeah. all these, I'm like, yeah. these just don't make any yeah. sense to me. They yeah. seem so coarse and yeah. homogenizing. So that's where I say like, I'm not sure that it's easier, and I'm not sure that it's our natural inclination. In fact, maybe quite the opposite, right? That there's a kind of training into ignorance of difference. Oh, I think there's a training in the ignorance of of difference. But, like, you know, I hear that story, and I hear that, you know, yelling and screaming are two different ways of categorizing two different phenomena in the world that yelling is this, not represents this, is this, <laughs> right. and shouting, right. screaming, is this, right? It's, and, <laughs> like, I mean, the, it's, it's a profound literalness. Uh, that's fair. That, yeah, that, that's fair. That, I, I mean, what I find with Lachlan is that he's at the stage now where he has to develop, in order to account for what is basically chaos in his life, he has to account for rules. Even if those, like, he has to develop, find rules that explain why this is like this and like why this is like this. And he like has a certain kind of, of will toward figuring out some kind of system that can explain why does this thing change but this one over here doesn't. And you know, he like learns language of like, you know, when it's like this, it's like this. Or sometimes it's like this and right. other times it's like that. And he just has to find these little, like he has to find for him whatever the little sort of the, the machinic hinges are. The if-then statements. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, like whatever kind of this. And, and they're like, they're absurd if-then statements. <laughs> but yeah. it, at least it gives him traction into the thing. And he's totally fine replacing them later on but he just needs to be provided with a pathway right. of how to get from this little machine explanatory machinery to that explanatory mm-hmm. machinery and, and and that's exactly where i mean you know we're just i mean i find myself frequently it's just the truth and lies essay right what concepts yeah. give you concepts of race difference and they give you a, a sense of order right. and and regularity and there are different ways of living in the realm of concepts and one is believing in them mm-hmm. 
yeah. and the other is pl- and the other is playing with them or using them provisionally. We would say, right? Although I would say, kind of counter Nietzsche, there is that you know they can be simply mobilized pragmatically. Like, don't play the screaming game. By the way, I also mean the yelling game, the shouting game. It covers, the, it covers, right? it covers everything. everything that is this. Yeah. Yeah. But what I but like Lachlan's line of questioning, like his insatiable curiosity, is like, all right, you just gave me a concept or a category. Now that has some implications to it. So let's follow mm-hmm. through with those implications and what does it mean for these other things? Because I thought I had a handle on these other things, but I clearly don't now because you've messed mm-hmm. with that system. Mm-hmm. And then that one's gonna lead to the next one, and it's the infinite and it's not even just like, you know, he's not two years old anymore, where it's just why, 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 why? It's like right. okay. Given X, then what does that have to do with Y over here? And then you just realize that, like, following that conceptual rabbit hole, you know, like, you're just talking about who's smoothing over differences. It's like, this game needs to stop yeah. because we need to be able to have dinner. <laughs> yeah. Or I, I am just not explaining, you know, this concept to you, which I know if I, if, you know, as soon as you can get this concept, you're going to push it to the next one and it's add infinitum that i mean it's fun as shit until it's not (laughs) well does he find does he seem to enjoy like the process like is he invested in an answer or like does he want to just keep questioning like does he just like the the he wants to keep questioning like the thing like the most recent example so so my mom is visiting for the first time in two years which has been great because the pandemic has kept us you know we went to the park and down at the um uh, at the harbor front, there's like this big play structure that's like shaped like a submarine. And he basically like interrogated my mom about every last piece of the submarine. And the main driving questioning was sort of like, all right, what is, what about this structure, like this play structure submarine? It resembles a real submarine. And what makes it its play structureness, and how would that be different from a real submarine? And you know, trying to figure out the logics of why this one is done this way for the sake of play, and the other one is done for the sake of something else. And by the way, do real submarines have wheels on them in case they get stuck in the mud? And like, yeah, if he was invested in an answer, I feel like we would have hit upon one, and that would satisfy him. But right. he's never been satisfied yet. There has right. every single case been like an arbitrary reason to <laughs> either he's been just sort of directed into another line of treat reasoning that culminates in food or sleep <laughs> or yeah. or it's been, you know, cut off by, you know, what, whoever the adult. I is. feel like that's exactly how I live. Like you just described my life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right? Like I'm just trying to figure out why these things are connected and why, like what sense it possibly makes until I get to food or sleep. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think a, like a lots of kids yeah. are curious and questioning, yeah. and in fact, what education does is stop that. Yeah. Right? Yeah, like it, I agree. It, it, sti- it stifles it, or it channels it in such a way as to make the kids not want to ask mm-hmm. questions. You know, the whole structure of of I education, agree. even in primary school, probably starting in kindergarten, it starts to stifle that. I mean, and this is, by the way, this is exactly what Heidegger would say. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. W- w- I, I just repeated a mantra of it. Like, education yeah. is what reduces us into the realm of representation and technological thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and it's hard not to agree with that for a certain um, 
uh, from a, a, to a certain degree, except that, you know, I think as we just demonstrated, you know, I, I brought up like, yes, I'm biased. I think Lachlan is freaking awesome. But I also just think that it's the internal structure of the categorical impulse as well. I like, just think about the Socratic like dialectic is, you know, just think about how many um, uh, Platonists arbitrarily stop the, the the dialectical process at a certain point when they found the answer that they like, and then ignore the X number of pages afterwards where you know the thing got turned upside down. Like in the Agorgias, for example, like you know the the the, the rhetoric as flattery um, analogy. I'm like, all right, well, we found Socrates' answer, and you don't realize that's only halfway through the dialogue. It's not even shit that, changes. Right? Yeah, not even <laughs> yeah. that, and a lot of shit happens between one and the other and the machinery just never ends and that's sort of like that impulse that that categorical impulse which is always a differential impulse yeah. right that you know it's always producing a difference like is insatiable yeah. and it doesn't have to be used sort of like purely for pragmatic purposes in fact if you follow yeah. it strictly it never allows itself to rest long enough to be used satisfyingly for pragmatic purposes. Now, I do remember, like, as a kid, kind of following that line of questioning with my parents. Like, I remember I would do it to my dad a lot, like what you're describing with Lachlan. Like, I would just incessantly ask questions, and it was not with the telos of satisfying yeah. with an answer, um, right? You're just kind of playing with connections and seeing where they go and trying to be creative and whatever. But I do find that, the, or at least I remember, there were certain questions that I did want an answer and I wanted yeah. one desperately. Like we brought up the question of death, like as yeah. a, as a, like a three or four year old or, or whatever, for me, like this was a, you know, it's a terrifying concept for any child, yeah. but like, I remember just being like so confounded that this would all end at some point. Yeah. And so I would just like be telling my mom, like, well, what the, what the fuck do you mean? And I said that exactly. What the fuck yeah. do you mean, mom? <laughs> at four years old, what do you mean we're going to die? Level with me. <laughs> and like the only way she could um, soothe me out of that is by, you know, lying. And it, and it, it did. I remember like this exact conversation. She goes, now, by the time you're older, like science has progressed to the point where they will have a pill that will allow you to live forever. And that's the only way she could get me to shut the hell up and like go to sleep and be comforted. And I was like, yeah. okay, like by the time I'm an adult, Science. we will never die. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, similar to that heaven story, you know, like I got the actual heaven story, you know, when I would insistently ask about that as a kid. And that one scared me more than death because... <laughs> It was like, you know, heaven is a happy place where we all are sort of like living in the radiance of God. And I was like, holy shit. So heaven is where you have to be in church all the time. I hate being at church. That's Fuck the that. last place I want to, to, to be. Yeah. <laughs> eternally. Like, yeah, eternally. Like, yeah, yeah. can I die? We, we, can, can we go back to the death thing? My parents, we didn't have the whole God structure in my family. So we went, she went science. She went, there will be a pill. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no heaven, I like that maybe a pill. Yeah. <laughs> um, it raises a question for me because one of the ways of responding to this in, in both of your guys' examples is to emphasize the provisional quality of all thinking, right? Like yeah. that it's uh, sort of, um, but, but, and, and that seems like, you know, I, I've got a chapter that I'm working on right now called provisional thinking. And I want to say like, look, all yeah. thinking is provisional. It depends on the nexus in which you're engaged and, and the sort of circumstances. And the extraction of any chunk of that from one place and putting it somewhere else is 
an act, mm -hmm. right? It is that, that one is doing something when one does that. But it kind of it kind of begs the question of what counts as provisional and for how long, right? Like, mm -hmm. so, you know, like how long is the length of a provision, right? If, if provisional just means for pragmatic purposes, and it, it hooks me right back into the question of context. You say like, well, in this context, I was dealing with this question. It's like, well, where does that context end? Mm -hmm. Does it end at the end of the chapter? Does it end at the end of the book? Does it end at the end of your life, right? Like mm -hmm. what what is the point at which provisionality is no, you know, becomes becomes universal mm -hmm. or or the flip side would be is universality just a, a, a provisionality that lasts longer than other provisionalities right. Right? I mean I would think you would have to think of the the performativity of provisionality itself or you know pragmatics itself like to yeah. provision to yeah. like make pragmatic which is you know I think if you wanted to find you know, I would say with every single beat, you know, the provisionality ends, which would mean for every single letter, every single period, every single whatever it is, like there is no, there is no staccatoed, actual staccatoed moment in the, in the, in the flux of, you know, of becoming, but you can always sort of scrape out. You can provisionally distinguish yeah, you can, the provisional. Yes. So it's not that it is provisional, it can be provisioned. Well, right, which is which is just another beat. Because it because to say it is provisional would have to say that there is an is there, but to ah but, okay, yeah, but, 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 so but, so what you're doing is just shifting it like it's always performatively assigned. Exactly. And so because it's like even the assignment of provisional status is itself Correct. provisional. Yeah. So you you never get out of that. Yeah. You know, it's it's provisionality yeah. all the way down. Well, yeah, or that the provisionality is a particular performative style. Performative-induced provisionality. Yes. Right. Yeah, well, and then like, yeah, exactly. For Heidegger here, I mean, it would seem like you could make the argument that he's saying that provisionality is universality in the sense that he wants to leave the question, um, what is called thinking, open-ended, seemingly mm -hmm. perpetually. The way to reach the essence of thinking is to leave the question of thinking open. Now, you have to interrogate it in certain ways, and there's probably more productive ways than others, but leaving it opening without answering it, that's part of the essence. So that provisional, I don't know if you would call that provisionality, but that attentiveness to the, the context of the question and how it's mobilized and what it's yeah. doing to you in that particular moment and historically, that's all part of the universal. Which is also, I mean, that's a Hegelian sort of thing. Well, that's the that's the contingency is the only universality, right? Like, yeah, uh, yeah. But I mean, it but it's almost yeah. like he believes too much in representational thinking or in the po very possibility of the reification of thinking. That right, you know, if yeah, there is the originary point, and then what you can fall away from it, it's like you've fallen into a particular state where, like, I think the whole yeah. conversation that we've been having is no, that drift is itself its own performative lying, and yes, right. maybe. You know, the number of, you know, like in that kind of um, Spinoza sense, the number of relations is kind of reduced. There is a kind of deadening to it, but it's never, ever stopped. It's never, ever, you know, truly reified. That, that's why it's interesting because I don't like the response that you have of the provisional is always performatively assigned. And I think the reason for that is because it's so human, right? It, it mm -hmm. ends up being like, okay, it's just humans that decide no no no, no. It, it, I, I think, it feels that way i'm not i'm not i think you know, the tree provi like provisionally carves out the water and the light and the whatever else it is like think we've how about make 
think of like the act of provisioning is the same as the act of appropriating, right? Provision to say something is provisional yeah. just means that it is appropriatable. And, you know, to provision is just to do the act of appropriating, which doesn't mean it has to be conscious or human or, you know, reducible to like biological life, right? Either. So, because I, I think, for instance, I mean, just to return it to the general scope that I'm thinking through is <clears throat> I want to say like all of the thinking here is provisional, which is to mm -hmm. say it matters in the, you know, it's relevant in the nexus in which I'm engaged. But and this is what the structure of the book should show is that from nexus from location to location it's going to shift and so mm -hmm. like the bodies without organs concept right yeah. like it'll it'll shift from uh, from place to place, um, but but I, it's it's I mean again I, I just like what is the scope of regular like, then what is the what is the similarity that one is mapping through that concept um, you know why would you even call it the same. You know, why I would hear, you say it's the same concept? I hear provisionality and just what you just said operating at three different levels at once. The first okay. is to say that the thinking, what is being produced is itself provisional, which would be to say right. that it is not fixed, that it is caught up in a citational flux right. that is always mutable right. and, and, and appropriatable. Okay, that's the one sense, which is to say none of this is fixed or reified. The right. second right. speaks to a style of engagement, is that I am treating this as something that is in flux and becoming, and that I am not going to... Um, like make provisional claims that reify a part of it even momentarily that right. I my aim is to produce a line of thinking rather than a, right. a, a, a which know, Heidegger a says that kind space. of thing all the time all the time right? for sure the path of thought yeah. is the, yeah. right but then there's the third way is to say that it is available for provision which yeah. is it can then be carved out like think about you know say like your stasis chapter like the act of the carving out of the thing which can be you know like there's no there's no context of your chapter that has some kind of natural boundaries right the fact that it's a chapter right. is one provisional cut another provisional right. cut could be someone else citing it another provisional cut can be you know you're referring back to it in another kind of way, but only you know this this part this time this part that time this part another time this time it's like you know six different parts across three different chapters whatever it is it's only in the act of making it provisional. So I see provisioning operating I see at those three different lines. Yeah, right? I see those distinctions. But as I follow through with it, I'm like I lose any sense of the distinction between provisional and whatever would not be provisional. Like, isn't then everything? Yeah. But, but in, in again, all three of those senses, like it's just all so in the first whether sense, I call it that or not. Well, I would say no, that in that first sense, yes, everything is provisional. Nothing in could the second not be sense, The second sense would be the difference. Here's how I'm going to treat it. Exactly. And, and one might treat it differently. Yes. One might treat yeah. it like Mucklebauer's final statement on style yeah. in this sentence or something like and, that. And here's like a good place where, you know, treating something That's what content is. Then content is the provisional separation of a style for yeah. a moment, yeah. right? Like yes. that's... Here's an example for that. Here's a content that I'm interested in not being overly provisional. A bridge over a, you know, over a river, yeah, right. right? Right. I would yeah. like to that that to be as, you know, unprovisional as possible, recognizing that it can't fully, you know, attain that. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, 
I would like that bridge to be not as, or, you know, not be, be becoming in any sort of like, <laughs> right. To stay there when I'm driving across the road. Right? Exactly. <laughs> right. And then, you know, the last one speaks much more to the act of, of appropriation. So that would be the act. I mean, like I would, you know, the third one is the act of carving out beings. Yeah. Beings so that, but I, that's, it's interesting provision. to me then. Yeah. But I, I like that because content just becomes a fold of style. Yeah. Yeah, that's, exactly. That's all it is. Like, and there, so there really is a distinction between style and content. Right. It's that content is a derivative fold, a provisional fold of style. Yeah, that right. is functional in its provision. Like, it's it's provisionally right. functional, right? You right. you you fold, you stylistically fold in this way, and you produce this kind of content that right. you know is valuable for these kinds of things. And I like that. I'm going to use that shit mm-hmm. provisionally. <laughs> well, provisional. Yeah, I'll I'll cite you. <laughs> there are three senses in which Nathaniel Street means provisional. <laughs> which I was definitely not influenced at all by Heidegger's four senses of. <laughs> right. right. Like, I'm going to get it done. A, one. <laughs> there should be a fourth sense that undergirds them all. That is the pure, yeah. authentic, proper way yeah. of understanding. Oh, no. the we don't need that one. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And also, <laughs> interestingly, like the etymology of the word, like I would think it would have something to do with vision, but it doesn't. Right? It's it is the sort of supplying of material for like if you're going on a trip, you get provisions, right? Like yeah. that. that right. It's so not it's not pro. pro it's not pro vision. No. no, it's the, the I, I can't remember the Latin, but it it was. Uh, I can't. The Latin word had nothing to do with uh, with seeing, you know. Well, because I was okay. like, provision is going to be perfect. That's going to be the yeah. word for theory, right? Like yeah, it's going to yeah. be in favor of theory. Yeah, and yeah. I was like, that's gonna. This is going to be the title, like provisional yeah. thinking, right? Yeah. Um, but it doesn't work that way. Well, okay, but now I've got a question that I've wanted to ask from the beginning about etymology and the fa- the value and the function of etymology is that yeah. I think all of us find an incredible value in it and i think that we're all uncomfortable with the value that heidegger places on it that is going to lead you to the originary yeah. thing and yet yeah. okay so so you know like, i'm going to anticipate boo to heidegger like etymology gets you <laughs> to the core essence of the thing hooray for that it's a way of producing senses of of yeah. um uh you know provisionally <laughs> creating senses of things or like dislodging reified you know, senses of something. I, I, I that love that, like, as, as an aside, he's dismissing the commonplace theory renderings <laughs> of responses to the que- to the question he has yet to pose. Yes. <laughs> are, I've been reading a lot of Heidegger. No. Um, but in the between, you know, I mean, I, I do think that there is a kind of drift of language. You know, I think of all of, like, think about the word idiot and the way that sort of like its sense of idiosyncratic sorry it was just sitting there the sense of like it. like okay the senses of like idiot dumb you know um whatever like think of like all like they're all just sort of generically you know someone is not smart and like no like well idiosyncrasy is different than lacking you know a certain capacity to articulate language is different right. from you know like us being in a stupor right or, um, mm-hmm. uh, or 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 mean is one that I often you know work with with my students is that you know, especially when we're talking about you know those Cicero's cases like the mean audience I'm like no they're not you know petty and angry at you it's a sense of like you know in terms of ends and means and like you know the mean person is only focusing on the means by which one can attend to 
that they get to get to the end, which means they're not considerate mm -hmm. of you know someone's feelings or something. Mm -hmm. And you know, so like I, I do find like there is a kind of almost deadening of language as it sort of circulates within you know common discourse, and that there is an energizing function of etymology, and there is, and it does provide a it does provide food for thought in a, in sure. a sort of like in, in, in an enriching way. And so like, you know, I, I don't want to suggest that, you know, every etymology is, you know, just as good as another one, that there is a certain value in tracing, you know, a word back to its almost sort of like most proto, you know, conceptual intersections. Right. Um, but I don't want to say that the value of that is caught up in its authenticity or originality. So, like, what, what's the but value of etymology say, for you? But why not but, just, I mean, why can't you just say, like, anything can be food for thought in that, to that extent. It doesn't have to be etymological. It could be walking down the street, right? Like, yeah. So etymology, to me, is just a hook. It's one way in. It gives you, yeah. here are other ways and other senses of the word that come from history. Um, you know, and so to me, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I don't think that when I'm using the word mean now that mm -hmm. I am then participating in that antique version right. mm -hmm. uh, in, in some indirect or subtle way. I am not. I am participating in the contemporary version, mm -hmm. you know, but I can, but as a cause for thinking, it's like, oh, here's an interesting way in which mean circulates. It's polysemous, right? And so, and I often, I mean, I, sometimes when I read Heidegger's etymology, like the call stuff was less impressive to me because I was like, all he's saying is there are four meanings of the word call. Yeah. yeah. That's like any yeah. dictionary will tell you that, right? Like you don't have to get etymological and you don't have yeah. to get authentic. You can right. just say there are four meanings of this word. Yeah. Um, especially a word like thinking for fuck's sake, right? Like there yeah. are many, I mean, how about if, it, I would find it incredibly useful if he just said there are six meanings of the word thinking, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, so to me, just saying they're the sort of, emphasizing the polysemous quality can introduce connections for obvious reasons, right? Like, so this, you know, the word mean has multiple, <laughs> now mean yeah. meanings, we're going to get all yeah. into that, but, but uh, like any given word has multiple meanings just because historically they're performatively produced. Mm -hmm. That's, to me, super simple. And like, some of them can be interesting and informative. I, I don't, see, I, and I don't like the, polis, the, the polysemous response to it because then it, it tends to like silo each one of those meanings. And, you yeah. know, there is a, you know, I... I just read signature event context again recently is like there is a particular communication across those meanings like they like these senses communicate with each other and that you know that our you know our contemporary sense of meaning has a particular relationship to that more archaic sense of meaning and that one is a bit of a mean jerk to only focus on the means you know from the ends and right. um uh, but when you but 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 ninety percent of the ninety nine percent of the time when someone calls another person mean, it has absolutely nothing to do with means and ends. Mm -hmm. See, I right? disagree. I think that there is like I think there is a sense in which they're getting at that not consciously, not like, or even like the word I mean this as opposed to I mean that still has a connection to means and ends, where the word is the means of getting to 
the content and there's like that meaning relationship. Can there. you make, I mean, there's a difference here. Can you make that connection? Of course you can make that connection. Like that connection can be made. Is that the connection that the person is making in, in, in any kind of conscious way at all? No, like there's no, just probably not. not. But the word has come to signify something different and to be used differently. Uh, I don't think that it, when you, we say it harbors a trace, it depends on what we mean by that, obviously. Like if it's the Derridian trace, it's not present. There isn't something there. Um, so, uh, and, and I agree, like to that extent, it harbors a trace. If we say a non-presence, it doesn't harbor a hidden signification of its originary use. Right. Right, Correct. like it's it, it got. I mean, so again, that's where the Derridian versus the conventional yeah. like uh, understanding makes a difference. But you know, that's the 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 Nietzschean interpretation. You take the word from one place and you put it into another place. It did it come from somewhere? Absolutely, right. Like, and does that somewhere make a difference? Yes, but not necessarily. Like, can one hook the thing and reactivate it? Yeah, of course. Or, or not determinately, that it does necessarily yeah. make a difference, and it makes a particular difference, but it's not a predetermined difference. It's certainly right? not predetermined because, I mean, as you just said, it's not a silo, so that sort yeah. of original signification wasn't just a self-contained entity yeah. of this. Right. I mean, right. That's, how we, that's how we treat it. It's like, okay, well, it was means, ends, and now it's nastiness. Yeah. And we can reactivate the means, yeah. ends thing into the nastiness. It's like, no, it wasn't simply a distinct means, yeah ends thing that there was a sensibility for its use that was around you know and so that's to me the much more ambiguous way that's how language works yeah. right there's always to me honestly one of the targets that's ended up being a target in this style book is uh, connotation denotation like yeah, that yeah, distinct yeah. that distinction yeah, right yeah. Right. Like, I, I just think that it's like I'm trying to find the history of it and I can't get too much in terms of the history of it. Ironically, I'm trying to get the history of how, you know, <laughs> the distinction. But I mean, the idea that you can separate out the denotative meaning yeah. from the connotative use right. yeah. is, I think, dis disastrous yeah, for thinking about language, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, and, and yet, you know, the difference between saying connections can be made and connections have been made matters right like you yeah. know the more you know just like the more that connection between the two senses of meaning that connection was made yeah right? of course and yes, yes the repetition of that has allowed for an easier passage Absolutely. between and, and a more sort of like um a messier passage between the two where sure. you know i do like when i explain that that to, that connection to my students they're not like whoa these are totally different senses of meaning wow hasn't it interesting right. how one word becomes something radically different like oh no i totally see that passageway and in fact right. i see in my everyday usage of that word i see elements how or traces it, yeah like i, I see like instrumental pushing instrumental elements, person right? is a mean person right, right yeah exactly so, yeah so, so the issue, I guess, that you might find with Heidegger's use of etymology is that the, whatever the original structure of the word and meaning of the word that he digs up, that somehow deserves foundational status, it seems like. Like with his use of mm -hmm. even the word to call, which yeah. the, the, the notion that call means an invitation, that's not an unfamiliar, I don't know why. He, no, it's not. Which he kind of it's phrases not. it as such. He's like, yeah. this is yeah. the real meaning of to call. Whereas the Derridian, like you were just saying, approach to etymology is just to play with a series of interpretations yeah. and mobilize them for use in another context. I mean, that's how the concept difference came into being. It's not that he gets to the root of the word and then somehow derives an ultimate foundational meaning of difference through it. It's that he's, yeah. he's forcing uh, connections. Mm -hmm.